Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the first in our new series, Uncovered, with me, Frankie Grant, and me, Joe Holland. While securely masked up and COVID safe, we'll be unmasking the issues of the day, be they political, cultural or personal. It's been a busy week in politics. Trump promised herd mentality in his latest gaffe. Ed Miliband returned as Labour leader for the night, with a strong performance stumping the Prime Minister. The government failed to defend their appalling record on testing. And the new rule of six has been brought in, as we've been told to avoid mingling by Priti Patel, whatever that means. But even with all that going on, we managed to pull over Shadow Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury, West Streeting, for a chat. We spoke to the Ilford North MP on Wednesday, just after Angela Rayner had given Boris Johnson a torrid time at PMQs. We spoke about that, the return of universities to campus, and dove into the economic challenges and the social changes that COVID will bring. Stick around for a couple of minutes after the interview to hear who we think is the MVP. That's the most valuable progressive. Anyway, that's enough from us for the moment. Here's our discussion with a fantastic West Reading. Hi Wes, thank you for joining us today. Good night, it's good to join you. Thanks for having me. To get started, Parliament is back from recess, schools are back from their extended holidays, and now universities are returning to campus in the coming weeks. This is posing a huge problem for universities, who are reeling from the A-level fiasco, as well as for the students themselves, who are also simultaneously being blamed for a rise in COVID-19 cases. You were once the president of the National Union of Students. Can you tell us a bit more about that, and what you would do now if you were in the role? <laughs> it's funny, I, I, I've seen Larissa Kennedy, who's the current NUS president in the media a fair bit, and have been thinking about the fact I don't really envy her job at the moment. I, I feel really sorry for this generation of students who are arriving at university because so much of their, what I would describe as their normal educational experience, is going to be completely different. And despite the best effort of universities, colleges, students' unions, I think it's going to be demonstrably worse. If you can't mix and mingle and make friends and you know get to know each other, uh, this, this whole Freshers' Week experience, it is just going to be completely different. And this is a generation that have already suffered enormously as a result of the 
A-levels crisis, which was completely avoidable. So I feel really sorry for them. Uh, I've also been reflecting on the fact that one of the arguments I used to have with, uh, sadly, the last Labour government about the issue of tuition fees is the, the argument that sort of ran through the Blair years was always that if you... Well, firstly, you charge students for their education because they're likely to be high-earning graduates, so there's a progressive element. Uh, that was part of the argument. The other part of the argument was by making students more like consumers, they will be more demanding, and therefore uh, the quality of education will improve. Now, I've never really bought the first argument about the progressive element. I, I do worry about the extent to which um, fees have been a deterrent, it, despite the fact that there have been record numbers going to university and record numbers of working class students, I still think for some people the debt has been a deterrent. But, but moreover, I've never bought this consumer argument, and I think we're seeing that writ large at the moment, because where are the consumer rights for any of these students? Where's the evidence that, um, that you know, that, that higher education is now demonstrably better because students are now more demanding consumers. I, I hate this idea of education as a commodity and 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 students as consumers. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I know it's not the done thing to criticise the last Labour government on a progress podcast. So let me move swiftly on to where we are today. Um, and that is that um, we've got to be really careful about scapegoating a generation here. Um, in my com- community at the moment, um, London Borough of Redbridge, London Essex border, where we've, where we've seen a spike in cases, it's actually been within households. So it's sort of family members spreading to other family members. And that's been the biggest driver of the rising cases. So I think different things are happening in different parts of the country. Um, I think universities, from what I can see, have been sort of bending over backwards to try and get um, the campus ready and to try and manage the risk as much as possible. But ultimately... Success or failure in this area is probably less to do with the universities and more to do with the government and testing. And whether it's universities or schools or, uh, you know, other community settings, workplaces, public transport, everything is being made worse by the fact that the test track and trace system is a disgrace. It's not working. We've heard complaints from MPs from all parties, from all parts of the country. It is just not working. And given we were promised a world-beating system, the only way in which this, I think, could be described as a world-beating system was through world-beating incompetence. And ultimately, that is the big challenge that students and universities are going to be facing uh, as people um, return to their universities or arrive at university for the first time. And we saw you this week in Parliament challenging Matt Hancock on testing, on the slow turnaround times, the long journeys that people are having to make to get a test. We all love the phrase well-beating and competence. Um, and I think we have to be careful when, when directly relating things to Donald Trump. But do you not think there's something Trumpian in the way that this government, our government, has dealt with the virus? Um, deliberate misdirection leading to a kind of futility and playing whack-a-mole with other problems that emanate from the health crisis, when surely in the middle of a pandemic, dealing with this health crisis as efficiently as possible has to be the focus. Yeah, it's funny, I was saying the other day that um, some of Boris Johnson's claims about the um, Northern Ireland Protocol and the withdrawal agreement that he got was Trumpian. You know, he, he described it as a very, very ingenious deal and I, I can't I, I almost had to try and stop myself from doing my sort of Donald Trump impression in the chamber the other day you know sort of Boris kind of going it's very very ingenious so ingenious so great. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
so I suppose we should be grateful that, that Boris hasn't been encouraging us to drink bleach to tackle COVID. But um, he's definitely guilty of exaggeration. And you can normally tell when Boris Johnson is spinning a yarn because his mouth's moving. Um, and I think that so much of the response to this crisis um, has been ill-planned, poorly executed. And, and this government, it, it, they always feel the need to say, we're going to be world-beating, we're going to be the best, and we're going to... I mean, at the moment, I think most people would just settle for something that worked. And certainly on, on testing... It was really striking in that Hancock exchange you mentioned that it was MP after MP. I mean, we heard from MPs across London, Luton, Stockport, uh, Birmingham, uh, Ashfield, you know, so right across the parties, you know, so, so right across the, the country, different parties, different MPs. And Hancock was kind of saying, oh, send me details of that individual case and I'll look into what happened or send me details of what happened at your local testing centre and we'll look into it. And it, we were sort of, you know, sort of shouting across the chamber saying that these aren't individual problems. This is a system problem. This is a national problem. And you've got to get a grip. And I'm really, really worried that as we approach the winter, I mean, the NHS always struggles in winter. We know that there's been a backlog of... Um, operations and their issues with things like cancer treatment and other you know elective operations um, that have been delayed I am really really worried about how the NHS is going to fare this autumn if we don't sort out the testing and that is ultimately on the government and they've made plenty of promises they've just failed to deliver. Yeah it's, it's worrying it certainly is worrying because we also have the the impending what's being called the employment cliff edge you know, the end of the furlough in October. And Annalise Dodds has been saying for months now that we can't just have a blanket end to furlough. There are going to be sectors which need specific support. Um, do you think, I mean, we heard Mims Davis say something this week about how there's more to come from the government on this. But do you think that Richie Sunak and the Treasury is going to have to U-turn in some way on this and, and have to um, renege on, on their statements about withdrawing furlough? totally and completely at the end of October. Surely we're not ready for a mass unemployment crisis on top of the health crisis, which they already haven't sorted out. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, because of deliberate government policy choices, the economic crisis looks set to be far worse than it might otherwise have been. And we look like we're facing one of the worst downturns in, um, you know, in the Western world amongst any advanced economy. And the frustrating thing about that is that we have been banging on about this for months. We warned Rishi Sunak that he faces a jobs cliff edge. We warned him that he was withdrawing the furlough scheme too fast. We urged him to take a more flexible approach to furlough and look on a sector by sector basis um, at support that would be needed. I mean, bear in mind that there are still... Um, a whole load of businesses and organisations that are still unable to operate through no fault of their own. The government have told them they are not allowed to operate, whether that's theatres that can't open their doors yet or um, businesses in towns that are facing local lockdown. Uh, they can't operate. And so to arbitrarily pull back the thing that's actually been most successful of any of the government's economic interventions on COVID-19, the job retention scheme, you know, it, we, we called for it, 
the government delivered it. It was designed with the trade unions sat around the table. I mean, I think that's all, you know, all the ingredients that have made it a success. And yet it's the one thing that he's determined to pull back. So I think it would be a terrible mistake. I think we're going to lead to unemployment being a lot higher uh, than it would otherwise have been. And if we're not careful, we're going to end up with a level of structural unemployment baked into the economy for a long time of a kind that we haven't seen in this country for decades. And that would be a disaster, a disaster for the people whose lives are turned upside down, a disaster for the local economies where they'll have less money to spend and a disaster for the economy as a whole. So it's not too late for the Chancellor to change course. He's got to stop being as stubborn as he is. He's got to listen to not just what Labour's been saying, but business organisations, the trade unions, economists, think tanks, even conservative backbenchers have urged the Chancellor to change course. Uh, and and that's what we hope he will do because otherwise people will be paying a heavy price personally and the whole economy will be paying a heavy price and whilst the job retention scheme has been a costly intervention i don't think it has been nearly as costly uh, as the uh, as, as 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 the as the price we would have paid if we hadn't taken that kind of intervention as a country absolutely and uh, uh, that brings us on to the, our next point which is that the economy is being completely overturned by COVID. Um, and I personally think that London is sort of a, a special case for this, um, as we're seeing that um, 50% footfall in the West End um, has shrunk and people are working from home. People have realised that spending two hours or more commuting is not the sort of way of life that they that they want to do anymore. And this lockdown has sort of given them a taste for that. Um, as a London MP, how do you how do you see this going on in the future? Do you think there's going to be um, a continuation of this deurbanisation as a consequence of COVID? I really think that is one of the big one of the big uh, economic questions that is hanging in the air. I think there are a number of things going on with central London. By the way, I think um, it's partly a reluctance um, by people to get on the tube, even though Transport for London are cleaning the carriages very regularly uh, um, and making it as safe as possible for people to travel. I think people are aware that the virus is still there. Test, track and trace isn't working. That's not giving people the confidence they need to go out and about if they don't need to. And so people, I think, particularly from suburban areas like mine, um, where you can't walk or cycle um, into central London easily, uh, you know, people just aren't wanting to do it. The second thing is, the closure, closure of the theatres in central London has a huge impact because that's a big part of the restaurant trade, the bars. Uh, I mean, it's been like a ghost town. So uh, there is a big question mark for me about whether that means that there, there's an opportunity for um, suburban economies, for local communities and local businesses to try and sort of get people to spend money locally and to sort of, you know, stimulate um, jobs and, and sort of business growth in the suburbs. Uh, ultimately, this big push of the Tories to sort of get people back to the office uh, and to sort of get people back to business as usual, I, I totally understand the economic driver for it, but their failure to sort out test, track and trace means that people just won't have the confidence to do it. And ultimately, you know, let me just sort of pra practice what I preach for a moment. In thinking about my own decisions... I got, I got into work um, and back by tube once last week to see what it was like. And I was able to socially distance, but it wasn't a comfortable experience for me. And there were people that weren't wearing their mask properly and it's not properly enforced. And it's made me reluctant to do it again. And, and I was also conscious of the fact that if many more people had got onto the tube, 
and bearing in mind I wasn't even traveling at the peak of rush hour, it would have been impossible to socially distance. So um, straight away, I'm back in my car. It's costing me more money. I'm driving to and from work. And in terms of my own staff, I've given all of my staff in the Westminster office and the constituency office the option. They've been working really well remotely. And um, contrary to this kind of mythology that people working at home aren't doing any work my team have been working their socks off because we've had an unprecedented level of correspondence and casework they've done a bloody brilliant job and I know I'm speaking for not just my staff but staff right across the house of commons um, why should I compel them to come to work if they're doing a good job at home why should I make things more difficult for them than it might otherwise be so I think the government has got to recognize that people are going to make reasonable rational choices about themselves uh, and also about, um, you know, about their workplaces and their own staff as responsible employers. Uh, and by the way, um, you know, and this certainly shouldn't be an aside, I think this has got to be core of the government's thinking. Loads of people don't feel able to go back to work yet because they're still struggling with childcare. And again, if your childcare provider um, isn't able to get access to testing and staff are off, that's going to have a knock on effect and if we've got the you know the sort of the rule of six operating as well i think there are challenges around that in terms of informal care um you know kinship care family carers uh, it's very very complicated so but the idea that people are going to be swamping back to the office anytime soon it's going to be business as usual really is just you know if it's for the bird the government has to manage public policy for the world as it is not as they would wish it to be Absolutely agree with you there. Um, I, like you, are from the outskirts of London. I'm currently in the borough of Barnet. Uh, and so oh, I... Well, you know, it's not very <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> um, and uh, I've seen a lot in the press, actually, lately, of uh, lots of inquiries on Rightmove uh, into properties in the suburbs. So you can definitely see a trend there, of people wanting to move out and realising that actually living centrally is not is maybe not the way forward or not necessary. Um, so how do you see your constituency in Ilford North going forward? Do you have any big visions for Ilford North or things you'd like to sort of do as a result of this? Well, I've definitely felt lucky um, as a suburban Londoner throughout this pandemic in that um, I live in a house, not a flat. Um, I've got a garden. Uh, I've got um, within walking distance of my house, um, a number of choices of parks, um, including a, a Fairlock Waters Country Park, a short drive away, I've got Hainault Forest and Epping Forest. So I've been really, really lucky um, about, uh, in this crisis. And I think there is definitely the quality of life appeal of suburban London as opposed to central London. I think I think people are really seeing that now in a way that maybe people who live in zone one and two didn't before because of course you know in the past they've you know my mates who live in um you know fairly central london and sort of boroughs like inner london boroughs like sort of lambeth you know would kind of you know sort of laugh as they see me going off on my hour-long commute home at the end of the night when the pubs have kicked out and that kind of thing um but i think uh, you know people i think have found it a lot harder if you're living in a flat um if you don't have um, a great deal of space i've been particularly thinking about younger Londoners um, who flat share um, and how difficult that's been for people, um, you know, working from home. Uh, and obviously on a constituency level, I've been really, really worried about um, the kids in temporary accommodation, uh, the families where they're really cooped up. Um, and I've been working with my council to try and sort of deal with that as well. Um, so I think there's, I think there are sort of, immediate pandemic 
responses, but I think there is a, a. I think this plays into a much bigger question. Excuse me, much bigger question about the kind of country we want to see in the aftermath of this crisis, because I, I really don't think that we can just go back to business as usual. I think this pandemic has surely forced all of us to really think about the things we value in life, friendship, relationships, family, being able to see each other, spend time with each other, um, the precarious nature of work and how important it is. Um, the fact that, and this really, some of the most striking statistics about this crisis, I mean, this is a recession unlike any other. There really are people, I think, more so than any other recession that I can think of, where people really are, you know, in a sort of a tale of two cities. If you're still in employment and if, you're, if your job is secure and you've had a stable income during this crisis, it's really not been that bad. In fact, when you look at household savings figures, for example, we've seen record rises in household savings because, of course, people haven't been able to go out and spend money um, in the way they normally would, whether on leisure activities or maybe they're just saving the money of their com of their commutes and buying lunches at work instead of having lunch at home. So that loads of people have been saving money. But then you've got other people in, in absolute dire straits. They've lost their job. They haven't had a stable income. Even if they've been on furlough, maybe they haven't been earning as much as they were before. You've got three million people out there, the excluded, who haven't had any support at all from April. And contrary to what the Treasury says, these aren't all super rich people with limited companies earning, you know, over £100,000 a year. A lot of these people are really, really struggling. And... We, you know, I think that speaks to the kind of country we were when we went into this crisis. One of the most unequal countries in Western Europe, one of the most regionally divided um, amongst advanced economies, where the gap between the rich and the poor is stark, uh, and where that's not just a gap in wealth, but an income, but in power and opportunity as well. So, if ever there was a, a, a labour moment. Uh, this is a Labour moment and it falls upon us now to not just hold the government to account. I always read a lot about holding the government to account. Bad news, people who are out there wanting to hold the government to account with the people of the People's Assembly and everything else. It's very hard to hold a government to account when they've got an 80 seat majority. I, I'm not, I want to hold the Tories to account. I want to hold them to account for their failure. And I'm doing that all the time, every single day. But I actually want to replace the Tories. I want there to be a Labour government with a Labour vision to rebuild our country, to build back better and to create a much fairer, much more just economy in the aftermath of this crisis. And we can only do that with a Labour government because, you know, as much as you hold the Tories to account and keep them on their toes, the very best that the Tories have to offer is nothing compared to what a Labour government has to offer. And under Keir Starmer's leadership, I am determined that we can get there. And, and on that, what would you say is the best way to translate the government's multitude of failures into a positive election strategy for Labour? Because a voter can look at a plethora of errors, but that's not necessarily what they're going to base their decision on come the next general election, especially as it's years down the line. So how do we refuse to let the Tories um, get away with their incompetence? but then transition to creating a vision for the future that can be successful as an electoral strategy? We, we absolutely have to offer people hope and we have to offer them a vision 
of how their lives and their communities will be better under a Labour government. Uh, but we've got to offer them change they can believe in. Because, you know, for all of my criticisms of our previous leadership, um, which are well known and well documented, um, I actually do think that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn had a very clear vision about the kind of country that he wanted to lead. And look, there are lots of things that Jeremy wanted to tackle in terms of, you know, big injustice in our society, where I, I have absolutely zero disagreement, zero disagreement in terms of homelessness, hunger, poverty, and inequality and injustice. I think that's, you know, that ultimately why we're both in the same political party, right? And why we're all in the Labour Party. Um, I'm just conscious that, especially being a member of the Treasury team, that we're carrying quite a lot of baggage with the voters in terms of, you know, people thinking maybe the Labour Party's heads in the right, hearts in the right place, sorry, but they're not convinced our heads in the right place. So we've got to try and sort of win back our credibility um, as well. And so, um, you know, that that's that's the sort of balancing act we sometimes, you know, have to reflect on and 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 think about before we start rushing in to make policies and and rush into big commitments. Because I want us to stand at the next general election with a manifesto that people read and feel inspired by, but crucially, a manifesto that they believe in and believe a Labour government led by Keir Starmer can deliver. Um, so that that's the kind of challenge we. And sometimes it, this could this you know I don't I don't pretend any of this is easy because the danger is especially you know when you're in the Treasury team the danger is you sound like a bunch of boring bean counters and you're kind of going computer says no to every request from um, you know other shadow teams um, however reasonable some of them may be um, but we're on a we're on a journey to the next general election and we've got to we've got to offload some of our baggage on the way. You know, we've got to rebuild trust that we can spend people's money wisely. We've got to rebuild people's trust that the Labour Party will take our, our security and 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 safety um, seriously. Um, uh, I think, that, by the way, that one of our big challenges um, in terms of, you know, does the Labour Party have someone who I believe could be prime minister? I think that I mean, that at the moment is our biggest asset. I mean, Keir's, Keir's personal ratings are fantastic. People have noticed Keir, they've noticed um, what he stands for. And thanks to some of the Tories' misguided attacks, I think they've found out an awful lot more about his background. And actually, people are quite impressed by the fact they've got a, a lawyer running the Labour Party, a former director of public prosecutions, who's done a big, serious job and who's fought injustice throughout his life. Um, but if unless the Labour Party changes too, we'll end up knocking on the door at the next election and reverse fortunes compared to where we've been probably for the last four general elections, people will be saying, well, I'd vote for your leader, but I'm not sure about your party, rather than, well, you know, I might vote for your party, but not with your leader, which is where we have been. Um, so, And that responsibility is on all of us. Um, you know, Keir can't carry the Labour Party to victory alone. This is a team effort. And I, I've been really excited and inspired actually since the leadership election by the extent to which the Labour Party is pulling together and the coalition that Keir was able to build to win the leadership with that thumping mandate um, of people who voted twice for Jeremy Corbyn and people who were some of Jeremy Corbyn's biggest critics. And I, I often find, in fact, I was just having a cup of tea this afternoon with um, an MP from a very different wing of the Labour Party to me, 
and I, I came away just thinking about how much actually we've got in common in the Labour Party. And we focused a lot on divisions in the last um, few years. All, all of us have to accept our responsibility for that, by the way. Um, and now we've got to build a better culture. And I think Keir has set the right tone to enable us to do that. And it's quite exciting at the moment in Parliament, despite all the challenges we're up against. It's exciting to see the Labour Party pulling together. And I, and I, I really believe that despite the fact the electoral mountain is so high, I really believe we can win the next general election. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, absolutely agree with you there. Um, I think, yeah, issues over within the party over the past five years um, is really important and something we really need to get over and um, to have a united Labour Party and um, just have a shameless plug here we're actually going to be interviewing Patrick and Gabriel next week on um, their new book Left Out <laughs> yeah, which we're really excited about <laughs> um, but yeah the ideas within the party are, are often the same um, throughout the different factions throughout the different sides of the party and I think it's just that idea of how we package it and how we package it to voters um, how I know it's a bit of a silver bullet question here but how do you think we can best do that? How do you think we can get across those fundamental labour values, fundamental values for workers um, and trade unionists across the voters in a way that we didn't do in the last election? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in terms of the party culture first, because I do think we've we, we got we to gotta nail that because otherwise you, you store up problems for later on and, and we end up, when we should be delivering a clear message to the voters, we're still having arguments amongst ourselves. I think I think our starting point has got to be trying to re-establish some good faith and and uh, and good faith arguments within the Labour Party. Um, I mean take take anti-Semitism for example. I, I noticed after the general election and after Jeremy announced he was going, I saw far more people being willing to speak out on anti-Semitism and acknowledge it was a problem and a problem that was badly dealt with than ever I found at points during the last four or five years when I have to say 
it felt pretty lonely being someone calling out like anti-Semitism in the Labour Party for people like, um, you know, me, Ruth Smith, Margaret Hodge, Louise Elman, Luciana Berger, um, the Jewish Labour movement, um, you know, and, you know, I'm not Jewish myself. Um, I, I stood with them because I didn't think it was just their job to fight it and I couldn't be a bystander. And I just think, you know, if only we'd approach that and when I say we, I mean the collective party had approached that more in a spirit of good faith early on. I think that people would have recognised there was a problem and and it could have been tackled. But, you know, the politics didn't work. So rather than just imagining that people like me and Ruth and others were running around to attack Jeremy Corbyn with anti-Semitism as if it was a stick, I wish people had recognised that the reason we spoke out, which was very uncomfortable, um, often led to us getting targeted and abuse and all the rest of it. The reason we did that was because there was a genuine problem that wasn't being dealt with. And similarly, I find that listening to people on the left of the party, you know, and I've said this at progress events before, when we had that influx of members after the first um, leadership election, some of whom had paid £3 just to vote in a Labour leadership contest, I wonder how, well, in fact, I don't wonder, I know because we've had conversations you know, calling people three pound trots or describing new members of the Labour Party as entryists, that that did not help our cause in terms of the debate about the direction of the Labour Party. And it was just actually an unkind way and self-defeating way to treat new members of the Labour Party. Um, and when I think about my CLP meetings, which are all member meetings, you know, and, and I think some of this is about the row online. I would never in a million years have welcomed a new member into my all-member meeting by saying, who are you? Did you pay three pounds to join, to, to just to vote for Jeremy? And are you one of these trots? You know, I, I would never, ever do that. And yet you look at the, the tone of the debate online, and I think that, you know, that's where I think some of this goes wrong. And I think we've, we've got to, you know, we've got to try and sort of listen to each other, understand each other, listen to different perspectives because that's that's when the Labour Party has always been at its strongest. And looking back to the last Labour government, I think sometimes if um, you know the new Labour government had listened to some of its critics, I think it would have avoided some of its um, big mistakes. And similarly, in those periods that we've been out of power, if the left of the party had listened more to the modernisers, um, they you know the Labour Party wouldn't have been out of power for as long as as, as we have been at various points, including now. So. Um, as, as someone put it, um, the Labour Party um, needs both its wings to fly. And I, I've, I, I very strongly believe in that, um, even if that might come as a surprise to, um, you know, some of the people I've fallen out with in the last five years. Um, I, I do think the Labour Party is stronger for being a pluralistic, inclusive, broad left party. And of course, on that point, crucially, voters see the fissures in the party. Voters see it, they sense it, they read about it and it, it form, forms their opinion. Of, um, of us as a party and, and dictates whether or not they're going to vote for us. Um, and I think we can all agree that Kia has been been awesome. He's been fantastic um, since he's been elected. And I think that the, his his uh, partnership with Angela Rayner has been great as well. Um, so I just want to get your thoughts on how she did earlier in, in PMQs and more broadly on um, how the kind of Labour brand, how, how you think the Labour brand is doing in terms of the front bench. Uh, Annalise Dodds has been really good. Nick Thomas-Simmons has been fantastic. Um, and what do you think about how, how the Labour brand looks with this new, fresh shadow cabinet? 
Yeah, I, I tell you what, it's been a terrible week for Boris Johnson. Um, he got absolutely battered by Ed Miliband the other day. Uh, and then today, I mean, you should see some of the comments that were made about Angela in advance of PMQs. That woman gets consistently underestimated. I think, And I think a lot of it is um, basically because she's working class and because she's a woman with a northern accent. And one thing I've learned about Angie in the last five years, we were elected at the same time, is, you know, like steel, she has been forged in the fire and she is tough as anything. And again, she just wiped the floor with Boris Johnson with really basic questions about, you know, the state of social care, how much care workers are paid. Speaking from experience, actually, which is always powerful in the House of Commons. And he just didn't know what to do with her. Um... I think I think Angela and Keir. It's a funny thing to say, given I didn't nominate either of them actually. But I think Angela and Keir are a really good combination, a really good team. You know, sort of North and South MPs. Um, you know, broad coalitions within the party behind them. Uh, I think it bodes well for the next five years. Um, I don't think we should underestimate the challenge in terms of Labour's brand and the extent to which we have to show the country again and again and again that we've got the message, that we're changing, that we've got fresh faces. Um, because when the more the public see of our shadow cabinet, the more they will like them. But it's so hard to build profile and to build reputation because most people, if we're lucky, will tune into politics for a few seconds a day. And we have to try and fight to make sure that in that few seconds, they're hearing Labour's message and they like Labour's message. And so if you're trying to establish yourself as a, as a new member of the Shadow Cabinet, that is a real challenge. But, I, you know, obviously I'm biased because I'm in her team. I think Annalisa Dodds has done a brilliant job um, up against Rishi Sunak. Um, Nick Thomas-Simmons, we've got Shadow Home Secretary, has dealt with some really um, thorny issues since becoming Shadow Home Secretary and just comes across so well um, when he's in the media. Um, there's a really strong top team right across the Labour Party. And obviously you're seeing people like Rachel Reeves back on the front bench, um, Lisa Nandy back. So I think we've got a really strong top team. But, you know, none of us should underestimate how difficult it is to get a hearing, to make an impression and to shift public opinion. And so we, I, I think everyone would recognise that we've made a lot of progress in a, in a very short amount of time under Keir's leadership, but we've got more to do, a lot more to do. And in, in fact, in May next year, we've got a crucial set of elections because voters right across the UK are going to be voting and we need to be making progress at every level of government, not just, by the way, as a milestone on Labour's route back to power, but because those elections on their own merits matter. It matters whether Labour's in power in local government. It matters whether Labour's in power in Wales. It matters whether we've got a strong voice in the Scottish Parliament. And, you know, that, all of these things really matter. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot done, but a hell of a lot left to do. I agree with you. I think Angela was fantastic today um, and she comes across as sort of like a real relatable uh, person at PMQs. Um, and it was amazing to see Boris couldn't even guess the average wage of a care worker uh, when when she um, when she asked him. Um, and I sort of brings brings me back to that idea you said about um, two sort of tale of two cities. Um, and 
makes you think there might be even be a sort of tale of two countries here in Britain where the, the government can't even guess the average wage of a care worker. Um, do you think Boris and his pals don't really understand issues to normal working people and sort of making policies based on that that don't really make sense? Um, I sort of thought about the eat out, eat out to help out scheme was great. I took full advantage of that, was eating out a lot, but it, it didn't help those people who couldn't couldn't afford to eat out even, even half price at that at restaurants, um, which was a lot of people in the UK. And so it's sort of a policy, I guess, for those people who we were talking about before, who the challenges of lockdown weren't as severe compared to the rest of the country, maybe, or compared to those who uh, were really affected by it. Yeah, the thing about the Tories is it's, it's not that these are evil, bad people who want to... Um, inflict misery on everyone across the country. Um, That's a caricature. Um, It's more that these people do not understand what life is like for most people in this country, and that has a direct impact on their values, their choices, their priorities, their prejudices, um, their biases. That's the problem, the fundamental problem with the Tories. And I was thinking about this in Treasury questions this week because you had, you know, Tory MP after Tory MP saying, you know, thank you, Chancellor, eat out to help out. X thousand meals were eaten in my constituency. I won't tell you how many of those I ate. (laughs) (laughs) Like they all made the same boring, repetitive joke. And I was cringing. I leant across to Annalisa and said, "Uh, I I don't think they realise that to lots of people, this is going to sound really crass. A, it's going to play into the play into the prejudice against MPs that we're always dining out at the taxpayers' expense. But B, I mean, I I, I did promote the Eat Out to Help Out scheme in my constituency on my Facebook page because I wanted people to support my local businesses, obviously. But I put a caveat on there saying, I I I just want to reassure people that I know that for lots of people they're worried about how they're going to afford to eat in at the moment, let alone afford to eat out. And the response I got was heartbreaking, actually. Um, A number of people sort of dropped me a line to say, thank you so much for recognising this. I just, it's felt really crass. Um, I've, I felt, it's really jarred with me. I mean, one of, one of, one of the self-employed business owners in my constituency um, her business has really, really suffered. And she said, I've had no help since April and I genuinely am worried about how I'm going to pay my bills. So to kind of then be told to eat out, to help out as a patriotic duty and worse still to see well-off MPs saying, oh, well, I got my 50% off. I, I just don't, I don't think they realise that for lots of people, this really, really jars with their experience. And that is the fundamental problem with the Tories and why often it is one rule for them and one rule for everyone else because they just don't they just don't get it they don't understand they've not lived that experience and there are lots of us an increasing number of us in parliament who know what it is to grow up living in poverty i'm one of them angela rayner's one of them uh, there are lots of mp's in the parliamentary labor party and not just new ones by the way i mean you talk to people like lynn brown and sharon hodgson about what it was like for them growing up as working class women and you talk about their route to parliament and their experience of poverty, free school meals and those sorts of things. Um, lots of us have lived that experience and that's why we joined the Labour Party and that's why we wanted to be in politics to change things. Um, it, it's not that the 
it's not that the Tories necessarily want to make people worse off. It's just they just don't have a clue and their policies inevitably do. We have Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson effectively attempting to rule by diktat from Westminster. And I think it's definitely a, um, a far stronger aspect of the Labour movement than, than, than for the Conservatives, that we we understand that um, giving people agency in their own lives and in their own local communities is such an important thing. Um, and I'm interested to know how you think Labour can best um, can best get that across to people and show that we are the party. As, like you talk about the elections next May, we are the party for people who care about their local communities and care about um, the people who live in and around them and and how we can best convey to people that we are the party who will give them agency in their daily lives closer to home as opposed to, you know, we talk about the shadow cabinet and it's important having um, a leadership team that people can trust but also people obviously want positive change in their own lives and that often comes on a, on a very localised basis. So how can, how do you think Labour can best get that across? Yeah, and I think there there are definitely two two sides to this sort of dilemma for Labour. One is, you know, we are the party that was founded to represent and stand up for working class interests in our country. But when you look at the last general election results, the gap between the Labour Party and working class voters has never been wider. And that isn't just a cephalogical problem, um, a barrier to us winning power. Uh, For me, that is a moral dilemma for a party that was founded to represent the interests of Labour in our country. The second thing, the second challenge we've got is that sometimes when we talk about tackling poverty uh, and injustice, we sound not only like we're only talking about the very worst off in our country, sometimes we sound patronising. And I'll tell you what, one one of the candidates in the leadership contest that I thought got this the most um, was Rebecca Long Bailey when she, she talks about aspiration, and and, and frankly, um, I, I I thought she talked about aspiration in a way that I haven't heard since Labour was in government, um, and and I think she got that sense of Labour talking down to people, and 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 we've got to try and stitch back the coalition of voters that we've you know we only ever win with a coalition of voters where the Labour Party says. We stand up to represent the interests of ordinary working people. We want to tackle poverty and injustice and we want to back success. We want to give people opportunity. We want people to have better jobs. We want people to have, we want working class kids to be able to go to university. We want businesses to be successful. We don't mind people earning money. We want people to earn more money. We just want them to pay pay their fair share of taxes too. You know, and sometimes I think we've sounded a bit too patronising and paternalistic. And we've also sounded, um, you know, a bit too anti-success and anti-aspiration. And as a, as a suburban MP, I mean, my constituency, I, I see this because a lot of the people that I represent are people who, like me, grew up in the East End of London, grew up in, in council estates, knew what it was like to grow up in poverty and have worked bloody hard to escape it. And... and they are instinctively values wise still with the Labour Party, but I think sometimes they don't feel the Labour Party necessarily speaks for them and is somehow anti-success. And we might think that's an unfair characterisation, but ultimately it matters less what we think because they're, they're the people who decide whether we get to win power or not. So I think we've got to try and marry those two things again of tackling poverty and injustice and standing up for people's aspirations and having practical policies that give people a sense of security, control and agency over their lives. And if we can do that, 
um, then then we will win the next general election. And the one of the important things about local elections um, is that Labour can make a difference to people's lives now. Labour can show it can be trusted with power now, and that can build greater confidence um, in Labour ahead of, of the next general election. Well, on that uh, fantastic sales pitch, really interesting, some really interesting things you said, um, a lot to think about. Um, we're really grateful that you came on, really grateful you're able to spare some time and talk to us. So thanks a lot. No problem at all. I really enjoyed the conversation. Massive thanks to Wes for coming on. We just about have time for our first of many MVPs. Our most valuable progressive this episode is Japanese tennis star Naomi Osaka. The 22-year-old won the US Open last weekend and on her way to the final, she wore a different mask out onto the court each game, emblazoned with names of black men and women who've been killed through police violence or vigilante violence. Naomi said that she wants to use her platform as a vessel to spread awareness, which we thought was really powerful. It's a trend that has become increasingly effective as we have seen this year in the UK with Marcus Rashford. But activism from this generation of athletes stems back to Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the US national anthem back in 2016. Subscribe to the podcast now as we'll have a new MVP for you at the end of every Uncovered episode. That's all from us for today, but we'll see you very soon. Bye.